Welcome back to the program. Years ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an ad campaign that referred to itself as the daily diary of the American dream. Today, we might say that the barrage of statistical information we get about the economy acts as that kind of diary. Just this morning, we probably all heard the latest GDP numbers. But what does it all mean and what problems is it solving? Sometimes it seems there's a kind of uncertainty principle at work in that the process of trying to measure every aspect of the economy and even our politics is actually changing those numbers because it changes the way we see the world. And since perception is often reality, the daily reaction to these numbers from Washington and Wall Street actually creates its own unreal reality. My guest Zachary Carabell in his new book, The Leading Indicators, gives us a walk through these numbers that often rule our lives, but often mean very little. Zachary Carabell is an author, money manager, and commentator. He's head of global strategy at InvestNet. He was educated at Columbia, Oxford, and Harvard, and has written 11 previous books. It is my pleasure to welcome Zachary Carabell back to this program to talk about The Leading Indicators, a short history of the numbers that rule our world. Zachary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. One of the things that's so fascinating is that we look at these numbers today, GDP numbers, unemployment numbers, trade numbers, and we look at them as a kind of gospel, and we forget that the actual statistical information that they convey has really been something that's only been with us for 30, 40 years at the most. No, exactly. I mean, one of the things that I was, I think, most surprised at in writing the book, and I sat down to write how do we come to live in this world that you so eloquently described in that intro that's so intimately shaped by these numbers, just how recently these numbers were invented. And they were invented. You know, they're not naturally occurring phenomenon. This is not like identifying laws of gravity or laws of physics. These are numbers that human beings made up and to describe a limited number of things. And they've come to dominate our public discussion and our sense of are we doing well or are we doing badly uh, in a remarkably short amount of time. And one of the key points that you make is that these numbers, as time goes by, have less and less relevance to the world we live in today simply because they were invented and evolved from a time in which the economy and the things that they were set up to measure has changed dramatically. Right. So all these numbers... Uh, GDP numbers, unemployment statistics, inflation, you know, consumer price index, uh, productivity statistics, all of them are essentially stem from the 1930s and the 1940s. They, they were, the impetus was largely the Great Depression, where first Americans and also in the Great Britain and the United Kingdom wanted to know just how bad things were. And one of the ways in which you could try to figure out how bad things were was to begin to measure it for the first time. And then governments wanted to know whether any of the things they were doing, particularly with the New Deal, whether those were working. And in order to know whether it was working, you had to have some point of reference. It was this bad, and then we spent money, and it got this good, or it didn't. Um, and then World War II, you know, how much could the United States turn toward war production without imperiling the domestic economy? And so a lot of these numbers are really about measuring a world of industrial nation-states. You know, countries that make stuff within their own borders and whose people buy that stuff. And that's the world that we really are good at measuring, and that's the world that these numbers are good at measuring. But as you know, and I'm sure as you've talked about ad infinitum over the past years, that's not really the world that we now live in. 
And in many ways, what I argue in the book, the leading indicators, is that we're using a 1950s roadmap, a very good 1950s roadmap, to get us from point A to point B in a 21st century world. And we shouldn't be surprised that we often get lost. The other aspect of this is the degree to which these numbers evolved to solve certain problems, to answer certain questions at the time they were invented. And the problems are different today. The solutions, obviously, are different. And these numbers, while they're still coming at us on a daily basis, really don't solve anything or don't move the conversation along. Right. And I think, you know, they were, they were designed to solve questions like how much of a country's in, industrial output could be moved toward war production without messing up things domestically. They were invented to figure out how much government spending there should be for a nationwide crisis like the Great Depression. They were not invented to help you and me figure out our cost of living, uh, even the consumer price index, which was partly created because labor unions in negotiation with the government and negotiations with companies wanted to say that there was this cost of living that they should peg wages to. But it wasn't meant to help you and I assess, like, should I buy a home? Or, you know, am I making enough income to meet my needs? And the idea that these numbers can be meaningfully used by us individually to navigate our lives, I think this is the point. They weren't invented to help you and me navigate our lives. They are invented kind of as broad gauges of an entire system, um, which, like any generalization, overlooks vast amounts of kind of individual variety. I mean, we, we make this mistake with numbers a lot. So if you read a scientific study and it says this drug or this protocol has an 80% chance of success or a 90% chance of success, you know, 90% of 300 million people, right, in the United States alone still leaves 30 million people who don't don't fit that generalization. That's a, that's a lot of exceptions to a, a, a rule. And we do the same thing with our big picture economic numbers. I mean, they, they, may, they may describe things in general, but that doesn't mean they describe things in particular. At the same time, we have a greater and greater fascination as a country with numbers and statistics and metrics, whether they're box office numbers that people can't get fast enough on the weekends or bestseller lists, or these economic numbers. People are fascinated by looking at these kind of metrics as if they're meaningful. Yeah, and of course, now that we live in a world where more information is at our fingertips, right? you and I can go online, we can look at the daily box office, whereas before, I guess you would have had to subscribe to Variety and seen it once a week. It's obviously much easier to find numbers. But one of the things that's happened, I believe, is as the world of information has become much more dense. Uh, our public conversation is gets ever more reduced to kind of simple averages, right? So we talk about GDP as if it's a, an absolute gauge of whether or not the government is succeeding and the country is doing well. And other countries do this as well. This isn't just an American issue. Um, you know, but the idea that GDP is a, an effective measure of like, are we doing well as a country, sort of misses the point. You know, all GDP does is measure how much stuff we're consuming and how much stuff output we're creating. And it's pretty neutral about the nature of that output, and it leaves out a lot of output. I mean, if a coal plant has an accident, pollutes a river, the cleanup costs add to GDP, the health care costs 
add to GDP. This is true for the, the BP oil spill a few years ago. Uh, natural disasters, really good for GDP because they lead to a lot of construction and a lot of rebuilding. But I don't think we would say, hey, you know, the secret for our economic health next year is to have four hurricanes and 10 mudslides. So, you know, we, we're, I think we're misusing a lot of this and we're not availing ourselves of a lot of the actual the information that we have at our fingertips which is much more relevant to our own specific questions or the questions a business might have. And yet what's so interesting about this is the degree to which Washington and Wall Street specifically use this information, use this misinformation as we're talking about, to make huge multi-billion dollar bets on things. Yeah, and I think we have come to live in a framework, particularly a political one, that uh, requires these numbers to justify any spending and believes that this thing called an economy is like a machine that you can then calculate very specifically future effects. Uh, I don't know if you've talked about it on the program, but in the past few weeks there's been a lot of Washington debate about the effect of raising the minimum wage mm-hmm. and also about the long-term effects of Obamacare, of the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of this has come out of the Congressional Budget Office, which uses things like forward projections of GDP and inflation and therefore tax receipts to try to game scenarios of what are the effects of, of spending going to be. But it doesn't do so, you know, with sort of probabilities. It, it, it kind of acts like you can accurately gauge just like you'd gauge a scientific experiment. And it leads to either we're not able to spend things for the future because we can only calculate the cost. If I say to you, let's spend $50 billion on, on investment in infrastructure, all that we would do at a government level now is treat that as a cost because we can't possibly calculate the future effects of, of what that would generate. Um, but, you know, it, it, we've come to live in this framework where all these decisions are constrained by and essentially shaped by GDP and inflation and, and employment projections in a way that would have been unthinkable even 50, 60 years ago. We even get it wrong when we talk about things like factories being built, as you talk about the idea that, you know, sure, we build factories, but instead of thousands of people working in them, maybe there's only 200. Yeah, so we talk a lot about a manufacturing renaissance, and that's been a big source of, you know, people understandably concerned and dismayed at the erosion of manufacturing jobs in the United States and the desire that that return. But every time a factory gets built in the United States, it's increasingly staffed by robotic floors that are flexible manufacturing, that are highly software dependent, uh, in a way that is completely different than a factory even in 1970. So that the same factory today could have 200 people and 20 robots instead of 2,000 people working multiple shifts or 3,000 people. And that factory with far fewer workers is generating more output. So you've got this situation of we could have really good growth. We could have a lot of manufacturing output and not any particular job growth that comes with it. And that completely messes up these patterns that we think pertain. You know, we just spend more money, build more factories, and voila, there'll be more employment because that would have been true in 1950. But it's just not true today. Uh, In the same way that 20, 30 million farmers in 1900 produced not quite enough food for the United States. Two million farmers today produce far more food than we need. 
And I think we're, we're operating under this playbook that if we just build factories or we just generate more stuff, then of course we'll have more money and therefore companies will hire more. And as we've seen, companies can make a lot of money and factories can produce a lot of stuff without anyone in particular getting hired at any particularly good wage. Which really raises the issue of what all of this costs us in terms of trying to understand this thing called the economy. And if we're not measuring it correctly, and if we're not really seeing and understanding what's going on, what mistakes are we making that, that arguably jeopardize it? I think, first of all, the idea that there's this thing called the economy that basically is, is the economic life of a nation that stops at a country's borders increasingly makes less sense in a world where there's capital that flows freely and also goods that flow and are made everywhere. I mean, our, our numbers have not caught up to the degree to which almost nothing is made in one country anymore. I mean, that's, that's an overstatement. But most things, uh, there was a great book a few years ago about the life of a T-shirt, right? That, you know, the cotton would come from Pakistan and it would end up in a loom in the Philippines and then it would be, you know, a stitched and sewn together in a factory in China with ink made, you know, from a whole other country and then shipped around the world. So even something as basic as that has these global supply chains, let alone an iPhone or a Boeing 787 Dreamliner, which might have, you know, components from 15 countries. But we act as if goods are made in one country and then sold either to us or to them, you know, depending on what country you're in. That doesn't get it the reality of the world that we're in, right? But we continue to act as if it is. And I'm under no illusion. I mean, nobody's spending $2 billion in the next 10 years so that we can come up with better numbers or revise our framework and come up with international statistics. So I'm not, I mean, that might be a good idea, but it ain't happening. So you're kind of left with, if these numbers aren't quite suited to the world we're in, they tell you something that just doesn't tell you enough. You know, what do we do about it? And my only practical suggestion is certainly at a personal level and at a company level to unlock the power of information that we have, as you just described, right, right at our fingertips. You know, we've got a lot of information we can use to answer the questions we have. We don't need to rely on simple, antedated numbers to help us navigate. We don't need a, a physical roadmap, right? If I told you, you got a new car and I gave you that 1950s map in a book, you go, well, I don't need that. I've got a GPS, I've got Google Maps. In a similar way, why should we be relying on GDP and inflation and trade figures and stuff that is like that physical map when we have all this other information we can use to help us? In the people that you talk to in Washington or Wall Street, do you get a sense that there is the realization that these numbers are no longer valid, that there has to be a new way of looking at these issues? Certainly there is nobody at the Bureau of Economic Analysis or the Bureau of Labor Statistics or in Washington or in companies who is not acutely aware of the limitations that these have. I mean, two things in their defense. One, the positive part of these numbers is that they justify the collection of an immense amount of really useful information and data. So while the headline unemployment rate doesn't really tell you much about employment in California versus employment in Nebraska or employment for a college-educated woman versus an African-American male with barely a high school degree, the information embedded in these reports, you know, the 50 pages of tables that come with each of them, does tell you that. Now, I don't, it, there's no reason to expect that people are going to start reading 100 pages of tables that come with every economic report, and that would be asking too much unreasonably. 
Um, so some of the people who collect these numbers would say, look, there's a lot of really good information here, and it's not our fault if politicians and companies and kind of the public media conversation about the economy is overly simplified and misinterprets and misuses these statistics. And I think that is, in fact, a fair point. You know, it's not that the numbers are so bad or so wrong. It's that they're used so badly and so wrongly. Um, if I gave you a hammer and you said, well, I, <laughs> I can't make a computer with this, you'd, it would be legitimate to say to you, you're, the hammer wasn't designed for you to build a computer, so you shouldn't complain that you can't use it for that. Um, so I think that's as much the issue as anything else. And yet, arguably, given the complexity of, of the world today, economically, we need this information more than ever. Right. And, I, and again, I think we have the information, and we have the capacity to create what I call in the book bespoke indicators. Bespoke was a kind of an old term for you'd go and someone would make a suit made to measure. And in that way, we can live a world with our information that's made to measure. Um, if you're going to buy a home as an individual, you don't need to know what the National Association of Home Builders report is about national housing numbers because those national housing numbers may have nothing to do with the local area in which you are buying a home, right? Very few of us are buying homes around the country. We're buying a home in a radius of our employment and our family or where we live. And the ease of obtaining the meaningful information about prices in your area, recent sales in your area, mortgage rates, uh, you know, available credit, you can get that information in a few hours online in a way that would have taken you days if you could even have, have obtained it even 15 years ago. I mean, this is not like these tools have been around for so long. They've been around really, really recently, so it's understandable that we haven't yet fully caught up to just how much power we have to find the information we need versus the kind of impoverishment of using a bunch of really, really basic averages that are national that may help you navigate that particular local world, not at all. Of course, the other thing we're seeing is the degree to which hyper-partisanship plays into these numbers and the way they're misused even in that context. Yeah, I mean, in a data-rich world, right, anybody can find data to support their point of view. And I think to some degree, there is a degree to which people tune out because if, if party A is just throwing out its set of numbers to prove a point and then party B throws out an entirely different set of numbers to prove a totally different point. The understandable human reaction is to go, is to not be able to really judge, okay, I don't know if your numbers are right, I don't know if your numbers are wrong. So there is a kind of a, a misuse of data or just the, the easy use of any data to prove a point. And it is certainly true that in a country of 300 million people and a globe of 7 billion people, if you want to find a story about things being really bad, that's easy to find. If you want to find a story about things being really good, that's easy to find. If you want to find numbers to prove it, you can find that. Um, but, you know, some things are not as susceptible to kind of partisan manipulation. Um, I, I, I don't think that, you know, prices, for instance, and a price index is a partisan issue. You may not agree with your own income's ability to meet your cost of living, and therefore the inflation number may seem wrong in that respect. But it's not like the Republicans are manipulating it for their purposes and the Democrats are manipulating it for theirs. And to some degree, the same thing about GDP. I mean, 
the number, many of our statistics are nonpartisan in a particularly good way. They're then used interpretively in a very partisan fashion. And that's particularly true given that they don't reflect accurately what's really going on. Yeah. And I, and I don't believe we're going to come up with simple numbers that reflect that accurately. I think part of the problem is, you know, we think we live in this unitary thing called the economy and that we all share an experience and we don't. You know, we may, as Americans, share many things, a constitution, a language, a certain degree of history, but we certainly don't share the economy. You know, my experience, your experience, Bill Gates' experience, the incarcerated African-American male, the, you know, the single mother in Florida, the family in Massachusetts, all that is, those are very different sets of experiences. And the idea that, like, one number or two or three numbers says something meaningful to each of those or Nebraska with an unemployment rate that hasn't been above 5% in the past five years or greater Las Vegas or central California or Detroit where it's rarely been below 10%. I don't think that there's a number that you can come up with that, that says it's like a one size fit all thing. Um, and I think that's part of our problem. I don't think you're going to invent a better one size fit all number. A different one, maybe, but it'll be just wrong for different reasons. Well, it's the old classic story about the difference between a recession and a depression. A recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose yours. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that cliche, which is, you know, nobody has a personal unemployment rate of six and a half percent. Your unemployment rate is likely to be 100 percent or zero or, you know, maybe 50. But. that is part of the issue of a world that's increasingly defined by these. And the 19th century, much of the early 20th and mid 20th century wasn't defined in that way. You know, our great grandparents were not sitting around going, how's the economy? Um, In fact, the whole idea of the economy is a very recent one as well. You know, the, the phrase basically doesn't exist in popular discussion until sometime in the 1930s and, and then not in popular discussion until after the war. And I only bring that up as a history lesson because something that recent becoming so ubiquitous and dominant should tell you that there are other ways we could be understanding the world we're living in than the ones that we currently have. Zachary Carabell, the book is The Leading Indicators, a short history of the numbers that rule the world. Zachary, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 